Belaying is a crucial part of our work, and that is what we're going to be discussing today. My name is Phil. I'm the host of the podcast. Welcome to Vertical Playpen, and we're going to be delving deep into several different components of belaying. The first thing we're going to tackle is what actually is belaying? What is the definition and what do we consider belaying in our industry? Phil, you're Mr. Google. Did you already look it up? Uh, I didn't. I, I know that it's a maritime term, or at least that's what I have been told historically over my career. And it means to hold fast. So if you go back uh, in the early maritime days, you will often see features on a boat that might resemble a cleat, like a cleat block where a a line coming from a sail would be controlled through friction around a cleat block. Or in the past, they had belay pins, a series of stacked wooden dowels the rope would weave through, and they could control a heavy loaded sail that way with the rope. So I believe the term belay is, a, is, is to mean to hold fast or to secure in some way. Yeah, and I think that the thing, so for me as a, uh, an English major, this is where I like get into the etymology. And I think that, yes, belay pins on, on boats is where like the brain goes because of that holding fast. But if you actually look at some of the ways that the language was used, so the way that the word was utilized, it actually it had a lot of reference points to halting or holding fast, but of an action, less so necessarily the need of a rope. So in some senses, if, if there's any Star Trek fans out there or any pirate movie fans out there, you may have seen a captain of a ship say, belay that order. And so what they're referring to is hold what you're doing, stop what you're doing. Let's move on to something else. They were trying to prevent an action from occurring. And that's where the belay pins and the holding fast of rope came into play too, because in that true essence, they were holding fast the rope. And so they were having to belay that. It was used a little more broadly than just rope mechanics. And then more traditionally, of course, rope and its translation from the nautical world into the climbing world in Europe and, and that growth in that field just slowly eroded some of the meaning around the holding fast of an action and became much more synonymous with the holding fast of a rope. That's where we tend to think of it now. And it's just an interesting concept to bring up to a group around what does the word belay mean? And very few people know. And I think that where the history of the word comes from, and I think it's less as, it's not as important as knowing the history of the actual action in our industry and the belay history, where it's like, what did they used to belay with and the actions and the techniques? Because I think that stuff is really helpful for our industry. But I also do value the knowledge of what a word means, especially when, this is where my pinch point comes in, when it's related to commands. So if we're asking people to say, belay on, on belay, they should probably know what it means. And they can know it in the context of what's happening in that environment too. And I think that's perfectly acceptable. But I also like people to know the etymology. That's my own nerdism. And I'm going to add in a plug for another podcast, The Illusionist, with an A. Uh, the Illusionist is a really wonderful podcast that's all about word etymology. So if you're a word nerd like myself, then check out Illusionist. Well, I just remember, Phil, in one training, you're like, what does belay sound like? And, you know, some people came up with, or you just alluded to it, like to delay. You know, like we're, 
we're we're stopping we're pausing as well and i think um, i remember that being really helpful to people i think back to your point hannah around when phil asked you know what does it mean in our industry i think the context does matter so the idea if you're on a dynamically belayed challenge course are you on a statically belayed challenge course are you on some specialty elements? If you think about a zip wire, you might take a dynamic belay to get to the platform, or you may walk up a ladder, or you may start from the ground, and then you get attached to a static rope length that still secures you and keeps you falling from height as you ride the zip wire. And in all of those places, there's pausing to make sure everything's set up correctly. The belay is secure, whether it's controlled by another person or not. And it secures the person to maintain their position that's safely in space, whatever that space involves. I think it's interesting when you delve into the like the the idea that you're taking a pause or you're staking a stop, even when it comes to the commands, it's a good point to have that stop to inspect your climber. It's a good point to stop before you end up having someone climb so that they know you're ready. So even the word belay on if we look at it the origin of the word it could truly mean like are we stopped and are we paused and we've done the checks before we even have people climb and so i yeah Mm -hmm. i think that that's it's just an interesting take that we've used that word we've put it to work to put it towards the uh, use of a rope but it has outward context even its larger origin meaning in relationship to our work and ensuring that we do that and I will also note it's really it is an important thing to make sure in a series of commands that you are having those pause breaks and you are inspecting the client. The climber understands that they're ready, you're ready for them to be able to climb. And so taking a word the way belay, swapping it with a word ready would be maybe an easier, newer option for a, a particular audience rather than having them a word that you don't know. I also think about, you know, we talked about the definition of belay. There's the act of belaying. But, in, but that has to be done in context of the belay system. And I'm not talking about static versus dynamic, but like just the compatibility of the system, the rope, the friction device used, the anchorage point or the point at which the rope turns around, how it's attached to the climber or whatever the load is that you're belaying. Yeah, so knowing the compatibility of all those system components and that it, in its isolation, somebody could be performing a very technically competent belay, meaning their hands, their brake position, their checking and sequencing could all be very appropriate, but they might have incompatible hardware, meaning they got a new belay device that only works on small or larger size ropes than the, than the one they have. And that could make a belay less effective. And yeah, so th- I just started thinking about that. I was like, oh yeah. It's a definition, mm-hmm. it's an action, it's a system, mm-hmm. it's a process, it's a lot of different things. So to narrow it down, we're kind of, I guess what we'll be talking about next is like the dynamic belay, but the counterweight belay. Is that correct, Chris? That makes sense. That's pretty common in our industry. We predominantly use that as our primary means of securing climbers on high elements at height. Now let's narrow our focus a little bit and think of just what we're suggesting, techniques that we see around belaying, but the history of that, because I think that, you know, we're almost suggesting with all of these different touch points, when someone says the word belaying, they think it's such a small thing. Oh yeah, belaying. But we could easily, and we have done this, Chris and I have done this, a whole workshop on this, a whole 90 minute workshop on just talking about the history of belaying. Chris, I'd love 
for you, if you wouldn't mind, to take us through maybe the history of belaying. It's interesting. If you think about it, years ago in climbing, there was very little hardware, if you will. I mean, the idea of having a carabiner, a simple snap link that you could connect one component to the other was a pretty novel and fairly recent innovation in the idea of having a load attached to a rope and controlling it. So the idea of friction devices even started out as simple objects like trees and rocks. You would wrap a rope around a tree or a rock and you could lower somebody down off a cliff to collect honey or do whatever you needed to do, right? Um, Lisa, you're laughing. <laughs> classic, hu- classic honey collecting. <laughs> no, it's from the Jungle Book. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> so... Anyhow, anyhow, um, you know, the idea of of creating friction with a rope is a very old thing. And so what's hard about rocks and trees is they're not portable. You can't just put them in your back pocket and start using them. And certainly as climbers started using more and more lightweight gear, they started thinking about other ways to do it. And of course, with the carabiner as the first innovation, they were often trying to create friction using the carabiner. So you know, a popular method early on and still to this day, and it's actually making a resurgence now in some ways in many climbing applications is the idea of a munter hitch belay. And Lisa, what does munter hitch stand for in German? The actual oh, word? Oh gosh, it begins with an H and there's a B in there and there's a, probably a W. <laughs> Definitely, I think. <laughs> Have washed something. And, but it but it stands in English half for half clove hitch, hitch belay, belay yeah. right? Which is a munter hitch. If you look at a clove hitch versus a munter hitch versus a girth hitch, you'll see that a munter hitch is half of a clove hitch. But that idea of creating friction around the carabiner was pretty innovative and utilized to very good effect to control a falling climber at the time. I mean, by the time challenge courses were really sort of mainstream and popularized in the early 70s and Outward Bound and Project Adventure and other places, things had moved beyond that and often uh, some sort of belay plate. The very first ones were probably stitch plates and those kinds of things. You know, climbers used chain links, a single chain link previously um, has the same shape and aperture size as a standard 11 millimeter rope and you could belay with that with using that with a carabiner but having a a climbing specific product made more sense that they could control the amount of friction they it was consistent from device to device that was produced was really helpful you know and and those plates have become more and more unique and more and more specialized as time goes on if you look at you know, go into your average REI, EMS, or climbing store now, and there might be 10 or 12 or more different styles of plate-style devices, aperture-style devices that are used. But with that complexity and that diversity comes compatibility issues. you got to know that you're using the right device with the right rope and the right application. And then the other piece is around the, the techniques that have developed alongside those devices haven't always been in alignment. Would I be accurate in that? Yeah. I mean, if, if the Munter hitch was the early belay method, that is a um, parallel belaying method, meaning that you take in rope and you break in the same plane. So the 
two strands of the rope are alongside each other because of the nature of the friction around the carabiner, you start looking at most plate or aperture style devices. And in order to hold fast or secure the rope, you actually have to separate the two ropes and create a sharp bend using the plate as a jamming device in order to do that. So what that means for your hand motions is that what was useful in um, belaying with, say, a munter hitch may not be the most effective and useful when belaying with a standard belay plate. And so different techniques have evolved. Sometimes people evolved the device before they evolved with the hand technique. And I think maybe some of us on this very podcast have experienced that transition that was we were ahead in one arena and still behind in the other. I know I belayed with a two hands forward method, a traditional slip, slap, slide. Maybe people have heard that term belay. When I first got a belay plate, I was using it incorrectly. And that, that then also impacts the whole belay system, right? The backup belay when even going back before an aperture style device was the body belay, you would back that up by having it around your waist. And I still see in trainings that preferred method of holding the backup behind the back. And I suspect that that comes directly from the proper way to back up a body belay, but not the proper way or not the preferred way to back up an aperture style belay system. So those, that misalignment between technique and, and device lingers. Yeah, no, that's another great example of that. That's a perfect example of that problem. That's what, from a perspective of, we've got the whole training team here. So we've probably all at some point experienced during the training where we run into some of our clients who belay a certain way that demonstrates that either they learned how to belay quite a while ago or they were taught through generational teaching how to learn how to belay by someone who hadn't had recent training and so it still permeates to a degree where we run into people hands up slip slap slide belaying using an aperture device and I think that the key piece I'd like to put out there is that it isn't uh, a bad you're not bad for doing it and i think sometimes like the assumption is when we say that that's not correct there's a like, there's a feeling of guilt like have i been doing this wrong or am i unsafe or and it feels like it could become defensive and i've even seen people say or see slips upside and say that's not right that's wrong and i'm like well let's tone it down a little bit because there's historical context why someone would may do it and as we discussed, the difference between a device being developed and a technique being developed, those not being in alignment, means that it, it's obvious that at some point you would be belaying in a technique that wouldn't be perfect for the device that you might be end up using. And if you weren't using an aperture device, if you were using a munter, then absolutely you should be doing hands up. You shouldn't, shouldn't do hands down. So it, there's, a, there's a, an alignment between the technique that you use and the gear that you use and just knowing which is right in those moments and not being necessarily wrong in those moments. Hey friends, so I want to quickly interrupt this episode to announce that we have a full-time adventure educator trainer position open at High Five. So I'm going to link the information in the description of this episode. So if you want to pause the episode, check out that description, go to that, 
Um, you'll find all the information there. You'll get to work alongside myself and all the other people in this conversation and do some incredible work. Then you can find all the information at the link in the description. I look forward to uh, having you join us in our team. The deadline is March 18th. So once again, pause this, come back to this episode at a later date if necessary, but uh, submit your applications if you want to work alongside us. And back to the episode. Is it over-redundant? Is there pitfalls to having the rope around in a in a backup if someone's using an Aperture device? Is there potential for spinning if someone was to fall or are you getting out of position or is it just a redundant thing that's not necessary because the device really just needs to be held down? Is that? Yeah, this came up in surprising detail in a, work, a level one workshop over the last year. Um, and we sort of played around with it, right? Because that, there was a person who was had never backup belayed any other way than having it behind her back. And we just, you know, I like to emphasize that a backup belay is as important as the primary belay and the backup belayer shouldn't also be the rope tender and the ladder spotter. And, oh, I'll join the belay team when I'm done ladder spotting. Like if you need a backup belay in a training environment and for newer belayers, you need a backup belay the whole time. And so we played around with different falls in a really controlled way. And really the best control is if you're standing to the brake side of your primary belayer with your hands in front of you, able to pull down and create that extra band on the aperture device. And it was just impossible in our little experiment to replicate that efficacy with the rope behind one's back. I think another thing to think about also is the idea that it's particularly if you're, if your participants are belaying and, and you're requiring them to have backups because they're learning or maybe they're underage and that's the reason for having the backup, that you too should be close enough to manage the belay should people lose control. Yeah, It's hard to control the belay behind a backup belayer who's doing a body belay version of it. Meaning when you pull on the rope, you've in essence got to pull the rope either away from them or cinch it down around them in order to affect the same action to translate up the rope to get to the aperture style device. So if they're yeah. simply hands-on, you can step in beside them, behind them, in front of them, wherever, grab the rope and be effective versus grabbing downstream of that backup belayer who's doing some weird thing around their body. You may actually cause them to lose control of, the, of their backup in the process of you gaining control. So it isn't just about their use. It's also about us as trainers or facilitators or supervisors, teachers. How are we going to be able to maintain control of a rope we might need to get our hands on? So I have a question to the group at this point. If I'm listening to the podcast, I'd want to know, well, why did we switch to the P-Bus? If we're saying slip, slap, sides, okay, why are we changing as, well, we changed a long time ago. If you look around the world right now with all the advent of the climbing gyms, the growth of climbing and sport climbing in this country, the explosion of even aerial adventure experiences, whether they're traditional challenge courses or, or adventure parks and everything, there's a lot more people out there belaying. And so 
even organizations um, like the American Alpine Club have made statements about the sort of fundamental principles of belaying. And one of those is that anytime a brake hand slides along the rope, the rope needs to be in the brake position. So the traditional slip, slap, slide, your hand actually has to slide prior to it being in brake position in order to do anything. So it really doesn't meet one of those fundamental principles of belaying at this stage, given the current modern devices we have. So, you know, you, you know, what is the other fundamental brake hand never leaves the rope, right? Never leaves the brake side of the rope, right? So that's a fundamental hands with our moving, they need, you know, the brake hand has to be in the brake position in order for it to move. And I think the other third fundamental that they often talk about is that your hands and your rest of your body should be in a natural sort of athletic and strong position. You shouldn't be having your elbows twisted around, your wrist bent in awkward ways where you're losing strength in your grip because your grip strength does play a role in your ability to control the rope sliding or not through whatever friction device you're using. That piece there is the piece I was going to add on as well because people will often say that they've modified their slip slap slide to be able to still go into a brake function. But what they end up doing is negating that third fundamental and their position of their wrist is, now I always get these wrong, is it supinated where the hand is up, pronated when the hand is down? Yes, I I think that's right. (laughs) So when their hand is going down, they end up in a supinated position, which is an unnatural weaker position with grip strength and also the potential for a really hard fall with a heavy climber and you're holding onto that could actually twist the wrist in an unnatural position and cause damage to the wrist. So it fixed the part where there was no braking. It got it into a brake position, but then it, you lose that third fundamental and, and then you're getting into a position where you're going to struggle to be able to maintain grip and you could potentially hurt yourself in that process. If there's anyone listening that needs to be convinced to try PBUS, it's important to understand why we emphasize that. So if Hannah's belaying me and I just, and she's got a parallel belay, which you wouldn't, but your strands are parallel and I decide to just jump off the catwalk, the risk is a loss of control of the belay that's very difficult to, to correct in that moment. So just, I think that's just a bit, just a point of emphasis is, once you lose control of the belay, especially if you're newer, it can be very difficult to get it back. So that's another reason for the skilled backup belayer. But if, you know, obviously you can't see me, but if you got your hands out in front of you parallel, you've got to go all the way from this, like we call the green light position, all the way down to slamming on your brakes. Sometimes you're still going to go through the red light, you know? So how do you sort of keep that control the best that you can? I'm going to direct you, if you are on Instagram, to go to at Vertical Playpen. There's a couple of older posts where, one, I go over what a PBUS looks like, and it's uh, the model for that one is actually Hana. Also, then there is another one, I, I believe, as well, that is related to this concept of uh, breaking um, in, and ensuring. I think, actually, as a quote that I classically say around the PBUS, that if you forget to break, you're just left with pus, and pus is gross. Let us just uh, delve a little deeper onto that, though, because we've said PBUS a number of times now. Let's break up. Let's go into detail. What is the PBUS method of belaying? 
So it's a four-step process. The P stands for pull. That's where you're pulling down with your non-break hand. So pulling rope toward your device. Break is where with your break hand, you're taking that slack and then putting it into a break position. And then under is again with your non-break hand, you're putting that hand um, underneath your break hand, sort of toward the ground. And then the last one is slide. Your break hand is sliding up back towards your aperture. So pull, break, under, slide. And a couple of things I just add on to when I'm teaching about uh, the P-Bus is the amount of rope that you're pulling through the system in that pull action is going to affect your ability to stay upright and also could lead you to do a very like um, hunched over belay technique, which means that your clothes or anything like that, hair, that's where making sure hair is tied back and you've got no loose clothing, but that could be caught into the, uh, the aperture device. Getting anywhere near that is a problem. And then for me, what I tend to do to ensure that that doesn't happen, and it's just this is my technique for teaching it. So my left hand is around eye level, around in front of my face. I pull down with that hand as the right hand pulls up until my knuckles meet. That gives me a tactile indication of distance. I then pull the hand down into the brake position and go under. If I follow that pattern, that distance for me is really nice to ensure that I don't get into a really hunched uh, belay technique. And is also going to protect my back as well from having to constantly bend and arch. If I can stay upright, that's really crucial. The other thing I mentioned is belay stance. I think that this is a thing that I have to remind people of the most is just the position of your body. Standing in an athletic stance is going to be so much better than you standing with your feet together. Because as soon as someone starts to lean on that rope or add their weight to that rope, if you're not in a really good stance and that person is equal or heavier than you you're likely to tip forward. So those are my uh, things that are coming to my head of what I teach in the P-Bus. Any other trainer tips in this group of things that you clarify or talk about in a P-Bus, Belay? You alluded to it when you talked about your hands meeting at that transition point. I think what that does for you also is make sure that the amount of rope you're pulling in is the same amount that you're pulling through the Belay device. Some people get into a, a position where they're pulling down more rope than they're pulling through the belay device. So there's slack building up in front of the belay device. And that's a hard place to be as a beginner. If you get slack building up in front, then the belay device starts bouncing around. It's much harder to pull rope through from that point forward. So that's an area where I see people having trouble. Sometimes it needs to be coached. Sometimes I'll tell new belayers that they're going to draw the letter V. They've got two pens in their hands. And they're, for me, I, I, I break with my right hand most of the time. And so the pen in my left hand is drawing down and the pen in my right hand is drawing up, but it's being drawn at the same time. Whereas I think, Chris, your comment makes me think about that, that challenge of pulling down slack and then dealing with it with the brake side and that sort of the slack gets trapped and that can be really funky. So you've developed that smooth process early on. And I like Phil, your method of how much, I think we all have different ways of sort of measuring how much I like that sort of start at your eye level. Your V Lisa would make sense too, that it's drawn symmetrically, right? That the two legs of the V are identical length. And so that's a great visual. I think I could use that in the future. So. And any uh, Europeans out there, your belay technique will be slightly different. And you will know this as V to the knee, one, two, three, 
which is mm-hmm. a hand swapping at the end instead of a sliding action where the where your brake hand stays stays on the rope at all times you're actually overlapping your hands crossing them walking back up the rope towards your start position doing it in free moves um so it's v then you bring the rope to your knee and then you hand over hand one two three back to your start position how about the waterfall method where you have two hands on the brake you pull up to your chin and then straight down to lock it off and then slide your hands up the rope what do we all think of that one of the ideas of a modern belay device is that you have to move rope down into it in order to pull rope through it because it's against friction right so if you're just pulling against the friction the whole time you're gonna wear yourself out or your joints or your elbows you're gonna fatigue quicker and it depends you know if you do one belay a day no big deal probably but like you're doing 30 kids in an afternoon session that's not going to be a lot of fun and it's not going to be sustainable over your career. As the old saying goes, a belay a day keeps the doctor at bay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I just like how you said a belay a day. <laughs> belay a day keeps the doctor at bay. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of the waterfall. I think it's I think it's a challenge for the shoulders. I think it, you're yeah. fighting friction. You're, you're you're negating a real component part of a device. It's like you're not using its full potential, and you're fighting yourself all the time. And the amount of force I, I hear a lot of energy. There's a lot of people get up on their on their toes to like do this like really arching, rhythmic kind of thing. And I just think repetitive strain on the muscles would be bad because unless you're really strong, but that's good for you, I guess. But it's like not helpful for the the be larger the larger larger population. I'm going to throw out something here. This is I'm going to asterisk this with my opinion. I do not think that there is a left-handed way of belaying. Let me change that slightly. I don't think that there should be. And I say that as a lefty. So I'm a lefty. I'm a lefty as well. And I so belay what would be considered as a right-handed belay. My thoughts on it are that I think it complicates things when there's lefties in the group and you're trying to do the back and forth teaching. I also don't think that there's, if you think about the purpose of left-hand dominance, right-hand dominance, hand dominance anyway, it's either minute movements or it's a large overarching like throwing action that's like very involved with that one particular part of the body. In the right-handed break position of a belay, the left hand is actually doing more work than the right hand. So in that regard, you would almost consider that would be a left-handed belaying because in the break position anyway, as a, as this is a good reminder, both hands should be going down onto that break. It shouldn't be isolated to just that single hand. So this is, once again, I'm putting it out there. This is just my thoughts on it. I know that there is, you could swap it and it could be left-handed. I also know though that Chris, you do a, this is more advanced belay technique that we don't teach, a constantly switching between the hands to make the action faster. And I've practiced that too, and it can feel somewhat odd. But anyway, that's my thoughts. I'll let the rest of you speak on that matter. I'm not changing it, so I'm staying lefty. But I think you make you make some really some really good points. But it's also how you taught it, right? Like you were taught probably with the mindset that you were going to go lefty. No one yeah, ever told absolutely. me there was a left-handed version when I was taught. So it was just like huh. this is just how you belay. And then afterwards, someone was like, "Oh, you're a lefty. Why don't you belay left-handed?" And I was like, can't change now. I'm too, too yeah. into it. But, that, but I, I'm, I'm just a lesson from the mindset of like, I've done it. I think also this handedness of belaying 
is directly related to the position of the belay loop. So if you think about like a standard challenge course or what might be called a beginner harness, it has what's known as a horizontal belay loop. It's an integrated part of the waist strap. And in that case, it puts the carabiner perpendicular to that. And then the belay device, the rope running through it, runs in-centered and either exits right or exits left, depending on your belay handedness. If you're with a modern rock climbing harness, which has a, a sewn circular belay loop that runs up and down, if you put a belay device on that, then there is no handedness right or left because the rope runs in from the top and out the bottom. Either hand could be the brake hand in that case because it doesn't go to the side of your body. It just comes in from the top of the device and out the bottom. So I think that, yeah, I don't think it would matter as much, but, I, but it does, there is some context if you have a horizontal style belay loop that that would be, if you set it up right-handed and told left-handed people that they could belay left-handed using it set up in the right-handed way, that would not work. But if you had a vertical belay loop and you were setting it up properly, either hand would work in that position in how it's set up. So that's a little more nuanced that probably some beginners are wondering what the heck we're talking about right now, but. <laughs> We shouldn't have to find the need to say, who's left-handed in this group? Therefore, I must teach you this new way. That yeah. If it feels weird, like they are really struggling to get it because for their body, is not, it's not feeling right for them, or however that might feel, like this just feels awkward. Then you might say, are you left-handed, by the way? Oh, well, let me just show you a different way. And that maybe that will feel more natural to you. And so I, I just see some people go like, who's left-handed? And they raise their hand and then you separately teach this isolated group how to do something differently. I don't see the necessity for that. But as I, as I say, I'm lefty and I belay right-handed and I've never ever found it to be any hindrance to me. Maybe we'll come back in 2022 and we'll inherit some of Rich's training group and they'll all belay left-handed. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be, that would sure be interesting. <laughs> Awesome. So we've covered um, the history, what the word means, what belaying is. We've talked about the history, the origin from the perspective of how we utilize belaying and the origin in, in, our, in our field. And then we've talked about the PBUS method, which is our preferred method if you're using an aperture device and gone over some little things that we like to teach and talk about when we are training people on how to use that PBUS method. This, of course, is not every component of it. I highly encourage you to attend a training where we will go into deep value in this. If you listen to a previous episode where we talked about staff training plans, we note all of the things and steps you should take in terms of that training. And one of those is in-house refresher training. But I would also just end with the idea that if you want to snap a video of you doing belaying, if you're, if you're concerned, if that's incorrect, don't feel bad if we critique things and don't feel um, embarrassed if you don't know if you're getting it right. The point is to help you through the process and you just may have been taught a slightly different way and that's okay too. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtap. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Thanks for getting. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs> <laughs>